Hey everyone, welcome to She Brigade the Podcast. I'm your host, Bilun Lumsemech. On each episode, we bring you amazing trailblazing women to come share with you their life and career journeys, from entrepreneurs to nine to fivers and everyone in between. Our guests go through all of the highs and all the lows of this life journey that have brought them to being who they are today. Let's dive in. Okay. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of She Brigade. On today's episode, we have Nozipo Mbandra. Nozipo is a conversation strategist who moderates global conversations for a better world. Um, she has moderated conversations for the UN, the International Monetary Fund, and World Bank Group. She also has her master's in development finance and master, her master's in international studies, and is part of a number of fellowships, including Aspen Institute's Young African Leadership Initiative, um, the African Leadership Institute Archbishop Tutu Fellowship, um, and is also the Managing Director of Akwande Communications. Um, Nozipo is also an award-winning journalist and a member of faculty for Duke Corporate Education. Um, I, haven't, I feel like I haven't even <laughs> scraped the surface. That's just like some of the stuff. I haven't even covered everything about Nozipo. But Nozipo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for a gracious introduction. Yeah, I'm really, really excited to have you on here and, and just hear about your journey because I don't think that um, conversational strategy, strategists, is like a it's not a traditional um, journey or career to go on. And I'm just so curious to hear about how you ended up in this space. Mm. Okay, so we like to start all the way from the beginning. So please take mm-hmm. us all the way back to young Nozipo, um, what it was like, your childhood, your upbringing, growing up as a young girl. So I'm from uh, Peter Maritzburg, so um, from KZN, and I come from a family of girls. Um, and uh, being the eldest uh, in my family, um, come from a very close, very tight-knit family, very traditional parents. Um, I went to an all-girls school um, when I got to high school, and um, that was Peter Maritzburg Girls High. And... It was after GHS that I then had the opportunity to go to university. Um, and I decided then that I, my first criteria was that I wanted to go to university as far away as possible from home, <laughs> um, as you would imagine any, any teenager at the time. So I didn't actually apply to any universities in KZN. And I actually applied um, just to the University of Pretoria. Mm. And that's because I decided that I was going to um, study political science and you know part of the reason why I, I landed on political science was that it was the cheapest course in the prospectus and uh, second after um, pursuing a law degree at the time and coming from mm-hmm. a family that is very poor my parents were um, uneducated and for the most part my my dad worked in um shoe factories uh, in Peter Maritzburg. That was before the textile industry collapsed uh, in the country. And my mom was always the woman outside the shoe factory uh, with an upside down crate and, um, you know, fruit and mm. uh, cigarettes and all sorts of things that she was, she was selling um, outside the factory. So that was my reality. And that's how I, was, I grew up. I literally went to school um, through with the money of a factory worker and a street vendor. And, mm. and so when it came to really just choosing something, I really wanted to make 
to be not as much of a burden um, to my parents. And so that's how I decided um, to study political science. And at that time, and I don't know if um, the University of Pretoria still does this, but you know, for every A that you got in your final exams in the trick, you actually would get a 7,000 rand discount off your fees. Oh. And, and they would keep that going even as you were then in university to one, incentivize you to keep performing, but also to create a very strong correlation between performance and reward. Um, and so, you know, having done fairly well in my matric exams, I was then um, feeling much lighter uh, in terms of how much it was going to cost for me to get to uh, and to get through university. So that's how I ended up in uh, Gauteng. And I, I was really just really blessed to um, find that I really enjoyed academia. You know, I think when you're in high school, um, it's really just getting through the process and so on. But when you get to university, you, you either love academia or you don't. And yes. I was, I was uh, quite, um, I found myself like a duck to water. I enjoyed academia. I enjoyed the you know, the process of, you know, immersing oneself in the problem and trying to then apply uh, some sort of critical thinking to it. And uh, while at university, I then started tutoring. Um, and by the time I got to my third year, I had quite a big uh, class that I was tutoring um, first years. And I then decided and made the decision that I was going to just continue and do my honours and potentially then start working before I do my master's. And as well, I was doing my honours that I was really, really blessed to uh, come across a, um, an advert for an internship uh, in the presidency. Um, and of course, I thought it was a big joke, but I decided that I was going to try. I was going to apply anyway. And lo and behold, uh, God been good. Um, I started a journey in the in the office of the then deputy president of the country, Madame Pumzilem Lambongoka, uh, who is now the head of UN Women, um, based in New York. And um, I, that's how I started working in government. And mm. I found that I really, really um, enjoyed the time um, there, and particularly I enjoyed the stretch assignment that every day felt like I was working with. Um, and around some of the smartest and sharpest minds in the country and to be able to, you know, get feedback and get um, challenged and get, get given assignments uh, by, by a lot of these people in the office and not just the deputy president, I think has been such a valuable gift that in hindsight, I'm very, very grateful for. Mm -hmm. um, and coming out of, uh, you know, I was at the presidency and while I was there, um, I remember her conversation with the then deputy president when she was asking me, well, when are you going to do your master's? And I said to her, well, I definitely have plans to do them. And she says, so where, where are you going to do them? And, you know, coming from a uh, small town of Peter Malsberg, KZN girl, being in Pretoria was already a bigger world for me. Yes. And I remember just responding to her and saying, oh, no, I'm going to do them in Pretoria. And she was so affronted, you know, um, and she's, you know, but what, what is Pretoria paying you? Is the university paying you <laughs> to, to, to do all your degrees here? You've done your, you know, your undergrad, you've done your honours, and now you're telling me you're going to do your master's. Um, so she says, no, go away and think about it. And again, coming with the same mindset, I was like, okay, well, the, once upon a time in my life, I, um, 
I had to choose a degree based on what was the cheapest. If I got a scholarship, I'd go to Cape Town because that was now, you know, the, 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 the next big thing. And mm. it was with her nudging and her mentoring, I realized that actually I could study anywhere in the world. And so I applied for a, um, a scholarship that got me to London uh, at the University of London um, at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And that's how I ended up doing um, my master's or my first master's in the UK. And um, I took a sabbatical uh, to, go do, to go do the program full time. And it probably was probably one of the biggest gifts um, that anyone has given me, this idea that um, what you've experienced to date isn't the sum total of the size of the world. And mm. really just pushing to say the world is bigger and you just need to um, step into it uh, and it will, it will receive you and welcome you. And so the time in the UK was also an amazing experience in that, you know, I got to live in an apartment with a girl from uh, the Ukraine, um, a girl from South uh, Korea, well, she's half Korean, half American, who still happens to be my best friend even to this day a boy from Greece, um, a boy from Belarus, um, and myself, and of course, and, and a boy from, um, uh, who was, had come from Oxford, so he was British. But just this idea of living within a global context with people from all over the world, I think was so important for me at, at a young age to really, um, beyond just the theory of studying or doing a master's in international relations, but to actually just realize that your story is only one story of many stories in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that we as South Africans often forget and we carry our battle scars of apartheid, for example, everywhere we go and forgetting that for, you know, for the rest of the 7 billion odd people around the world that don't have or understand that experience, that they carry their own battle scars of whatever their reality dealt them. And so part of my biggest learning at that point in my life was probably just this idea that I can choose to carry certain burdens and I can also choose to put them down and really be a citizen of the world and um, also appreciate and understand that everybody else is carrying some sort of cross or burden from their own experience, um, depending on where they, where they, who they are and, and who they are in what context. Right. Um, so one of the things I always love to chuckle at is that, you know, in 1994, while well, the rest of us South Africans were, um, you know, celebrating this transitional moment that we're having in a country, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of Rwandans just, you know, less than a three and a half hour flight from us were being massacred and murdered mm. in the Rwandan genocide. So context, I think, is my point. Uh, context is yeah. important and um, making time to stop and reflect on the context of others uh, before judging what they should be doing or should not be doing or thinking or being is important. When I came back from the UK, South Africa was going through another change. Um, and this was, uh, you know, the Bulukwane uh, conference. And there was a change in administration. And I was really, again, blessed when the deputy presidents invited me. Um, to come and join her um, at a leadership foundation that she was setting up. And so started a, a point in my life where um, I was working with uh, her and a team of others to build a program for um, school principals uh, that lead 
uh, r rural schools and under-resourced schools in, in the country. And our mission there was really to get the principals thinking about um, how they're not just principals of schools, but they need to see themselves as leaders of organizations. Because once you start to see yourself as a leader, how you engage with, with the thing that you're leading, the organization and the people and the community that you're leading is different. And so yes. we wanted them to see themselves as CEOs even, and that the schools were these entities and they had shareholders, you know, that uh, mm. that wanted returns. And now those shareholders being in the form of the learners, their parents, their communities, um, you know, um, there was a way to manage resources and so on and so on. So innovation was needed to be at the core of what they did. And it was probably one of the most satisfying um, um, times in my life working um, uh, at the Umlambo Foundation. And it was, you know, we crisscrossed the country, visiting all of these rural schools and sitting down with the, the principals and the senior management teams and really trying to make a difference um, by trying to create a systemic difference in the principal that we believe that would then have a systemic difference in the, in the school. Um, and in the teaching and learning experience for every learner. But I think, mm. you know, when I reflect back on that time, I realized that um, the reason why I made my next career move was um, out of anxiety um, that, you know, I had some experience in government. I had some experience um, in now civil society, but I was starting to get anxious that I didn't have any experience uh, in business. And, and at the time, you know, the having an MBA in South Africa was all the craze. You know, if you didn't have an MBA and you weren't working for <laughs> one of the big, <laughs> you know, auditing firms or something, you know, you were missing out. And I fell into that yeah. trap and that narrative and I started to get anxious. And I, you know, I spoke to my boss and I said, look, I'm going to leave and I'm, I want to go into the private sector. And perhaps, you know, the way I describe what happened next is probably the most um, humbling um, experience of my life um, because there I was I was still young in my early 20s I had a master's degree from abroad I'd worked in the presidency oh and I left out the part that I actually went and I worked in Washington before starting at the foundation in in Washington DC um, yes. so I had all of this global experience and you know I started knocking on the doors of um, different blue chip companies in South Africa and I was getting the same response and the response was oh my goodness we think you're fantastic but oh you don't have an MBA and uh, you know you don't even have like a traditional really? marketing or communications degree we don't really know what to do with the with the masters in international studies what is that you know um, yeah. and so you know very um, very very humbled uh, by all the rejections um, that I was getting at the time, we went back to my boss and I said, you know, I feel like, you know, um, I feel stuck. I can't believe this is happening to me. And it was a moment of reckoning. I think it needed to happen for me to come back and to, to have some honest conversations about who I was becoming in that moment. And I think getting caught up with thinking that the, the journey I'd had to, to that point was you know completely lustrous and people should be falling at my feet to hire me. The long story short, I eventually got approached by a company who had actually managed to raise some money from uh, when we were working from the foundation. And it was one of the companies I really didn't think that I was going to work for. 
But I found myself of, um, taking up the offer to come and join uh, the Tata Group as the head of corporate communications um, for Africa. And at the time, a lot of people around in South Africa in particular, when you say to them Tata, they were just thinking of Tata Indica, the car. Um, and yes. my, my <laughs> job was to come in and really um, rewrite uh, the, the history and the future narrative of the group because Tata's, the Tata group is the fifth biggest conglomerate in the world, which is one of the unknown facts. It's, you oh, know, wow. beyond just cars and trucks, they're in hotels, they're in salt, they're in steel, they're in power, they're in leather, they, you know, anything, you know, one, I think the thing that made it real for me was that having, spending some time in India, in particular in Mumbai, realizing that the Tata brand is probably Coca-Cola and McDonald's combined. Uh, in terms of the size oh. of that brand in India and the rest of the world. And so after that, um, you know, I spent some time at Tata and it was a, it was a really, really um, a, a learning stretch for me because I think, you know, I, I, I've had the experience of working with leaders with an incredible work ethic, but I think that was probably sharpened for me um, significantly uh, when I got to Tata I got into the habit of six day weeks um, and just really grinding um, to mm. get the work done and it was while I was there that um, um, decided that I'd commissioned CNBC Africa to come and shoot a documentary for the Tata group to help us tell the Tata story across the continent um, and it was when we were when we were just about to flight uh, the documentary, the then uh, producer of the show um, says, you know, we've watched this thing and I think what we're missing is um, the voice of an African, you know, just talking about the future of the Tata brand, given um, that the story has really been historical. And so they all turned around and looked at me and said, well, we think you should be the one to do it. So I quickly uh, took the idea to my boss. We co-created what I should say which was all of 15 seconds. And I remember I called my mom and I was like, you know, I'm going to be on TV and you need to make sure that it's, you keep watching, it's right at the end. And, you know, just like all mothers do, she had gathered the entire community and everybody was waiting for these 15 seconds of me right at the end. And um, on the back of those 15 seconds, I got a call about two weeks later to say, hey, we actually really like the way you you tell stories and the way you brought a different lens to what we were thinking and we'd like you to join us as an anchor. And I, oh, wow. you can imagine that at the time, I just thought, no, these people have really lost their minds. Um, <laughs> and I had to put, in, put up quite a number of objections. First, among them being, I know nothing about finance. I mean, I didn't grow up in a household where we were going through the financial mail or talking about you know, what's on business day TV or whatever. Um, I didn't know anything about finance. I didn't know how to trade stocks. I didn't know how the JSC works or anything. And they took, a, they just, you know, they had faith in me and they said, you will learn. We have a feeling that you're a fast learner, but come and join us as an anchor. And for now you can start off with um, a, a show that was called Beyond Markets, which was really an analysis of the impact of uh, politica political political um, movements and how they were impacting the market on the day, um, which was at least I knew something about politics and I knew something about um, uh, uh, political e economics as well. So 
that was a good landing pad. But once I started, I knew very quickly that I was going to have to ramp up my knowledge and learn. And that's how I ended up doing a second master's and this time part-time uh, with the Stellenbosch Business School in development finance because I really wanted to understand how the financial world works, both from the financial markets all the way to how we can apply financial instruments for development purposes on the continent. And I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, that degree as well. And I think at a personal level, I think I had a breakthrough in the sense that I'd always been one of those people who go through life saying, I, I, I don't do numbers or I'm not good at numbers. And mm. to be able to, you know, uh, do a master's in finance and, you know, and get a cum laude at the end of it, I think mm. was important for me just to break, break that narrative. And I enjoyed the time then. And how this led, le leads me into this um, um, question around the conversation strategy is that it was while I was at CNBC Africa that I came across a show called Invest Africa that I really fell in love with. And I remember, you know, approaching the editor-in-chief at the time and saying, look, there's this show um, that I really, really would like to be considered uh, as to host. It was a show about looking at investment opportunities across sectors. And so as the anchor, you would be in Johannesburg, but you'd be connected with a guest from East Africa, a guest from West Africa, and somebody else in Johannesburg would, who would be representing uh, uh, Southern Africa. And you would have almost a continent-wide conversation around a particular investment opportunity. And I really enjoyed the show once I got it. And one day I got a call uh, from someone who had been watching the show for some time, and they said, you know that thing that you do when you are um, speaking to three or four people at the same time, do you think you could do that in front of a live audience? And I just thought, mm. well, sure, I didn't see, I really didn't see why it would be too difficult. And so that's how I started work as a moderator. So I started moderating and very quickly, um, the, you know, the way the moderating world works is that it's, um, it's like a domino effect. Um, your clients tell other clients who tell other clients. And so before I knew it, I had this title that I was a global moderator and I was, you know, all over the world being invited to uh, moderate conversations and conferences and so on. Um, mm -hmm. And so I landed on, on the title of being a conversation strategist when in addition to moderating conversations around the world, I started getting invitations um, to come into a closed room with executives of businesses and um, unpack their strategies and begin to say, how are we going to use conversation science or the art of conversation to actually cascade and disseminate the strategy so that one, it's ignited um, in the people that need to actually deliver it and it makes sense and it speaks to the core of why they're here and the how we, we talk about the strategy simplifies what we want to do and how we want to do it and why we're doing it. And and, and so once I took, you know, when I, once I stopped to reflect on what am I doing exactly? I mean, I think I was actually, you know, this sort of crept up on me because it started off as a, um, an uncomfortable conversation with myself to say, well, Nozit, does your work really matter? You know, people see um, you on stages um, moderating and orchestrating conversations and so on. And now you're, you're sitting with executives um, of global organizations and you're working with their strategies. At the end of the day, what is this thing? And it's so, so, and that's how I landed on, you know, what I'm doing is actually I'm merging conversation and strategy. 
and I'm lifting the best mm-hmm. of conversation and I'm lifting the best of strategy. And together, when you put those things together, you actually am doing something that actually not a lot of people are doing and have been doing. And so, you know, when people, young people in particular will reach out to me and say, what do I need to study to become a conversation strategist? Um, I now realize that actually that is a question we've been asking of all careers, right? So you see someone doing well and you're like, okay, what do I need to study to become an investment banker? And I think it's it's fundamentally the wrong question um, because how I got here was not a function of just what I studied. It was actually a function of seeing opportunity and going for for those opportunities, building on those opportunities, um, not being afraid to go into an uncharted space and just creating something out of that space and creating it through the passion for what you're doing and the skill that you have um, built up until that point. And so, you know, there might be many other people who um, do similar work to me that have had a very different academic path um, mm. to me and have a, had a very diff- different professional path to me. And so I think we, we really need to do and focus uh, some work on releasing young people in particular from this idea that there is there's this solid pathway that they can follow from studying this thing and um, ending up being that thing. It just, it just isn't true. I know um, mm-hmm. doctors, you know, medical doctors who, you know, today are consultants uh, with, you know, one of the big four or five in South Africa because they're just bringing a medical lens to problem solving. Um, and they're not, uh, you know, operating on people at any point in time. Um, so I, I, I look at the work that I do and I say that the work that I do is a sum total of the journey that I've been on. And I've just given it a name, um, but I'm very pleased that I do get a lot of messages um, of young people saying, um, you know, I finally feel like I can put a word to what I aspire to do. And that for me is good enough. Mm. Oh, wow. I, I love that um, in your journey, like you said just now, it was about t- seeing an opportunity and taking it. And even though a lot of what you did, like with the Tata, taking up the Tata position, it wasn't really part of the mm. plan. It wasn't really something that you necessarily wanted to do. You still took that opportunity anyway, and it ended up putting you in a position where you could actually end up doing what you wanted to do, even though you didn't necessarily know what that was at the yeah, time. Yeah, 100%. Oh, I mean, that I, I really do love that. Um, so, okay, what are some of, what are some of like the the lowlights of your journey. So, I mean, we talk a lot about the great things and, but like, what are some of the things that you would say are, your, are the lowlights th- in getting to you? I think, today? I think, you know, in hindsight, I think I've learned a lot from those lowlights, but there probably were lowlights in that moment. So for example, you know, going mm-hmm. through what I described as my most humbling moment of going to interview after interview and, you know, getting that constant feedback uh, that says, well, you're not a fit um, is, is something that I would have described it as a low light at the time, you know, but you know, the beautiful thing about hindsight and age is that the, what seems to be like, um, as a collection of dots with time, you can begin to piece together dots and make meaning out of it. And I can now say, for example, that this wasn't just a, a, a reflection of 
me and my inability to fit in 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 the in the current uh, job market the job market was crazy about a particular thing at the time that being the mba mm-hmm. and you know if you were a black female you were really a catch especially given the fact that you you know the um be um uh, points uh, was really like a big focus but if you're a black woman with an mba you know, now that is the, you know, that is the asset that everyone was looking after. Yeah. And it just wasn't that. And, um, and so what, what at the time was probably um, feeling rejected and, um, you know, just uh, inadequate. Um, today, I can reflect back on him like, well, I didn't fit in any box because I was never um, supposed to be anybody, in anybody's box. Um, and <laughs> I can only imagine where I'd be now if I had actually um, taken up one of those jobs, probably, you know, just yeah. climbing the corporate ladder in one way or the other. So that was probably one of the, um, one of the, 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 the really difficult times in my career um, that I, you know, went through with a deal, great deal of shame and, um, you know, just feeling when I'd open up an email and get that we regret to inform you. Um, and, but, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, um, I'm better for it. What would you say to someone? Because what you're saying is something that happens to a lot mm. of us. <laughs> no, I've gone through it where I'm like, but you know, you kind of, <laughs> for lack of a better word, like you think you're amazing and you're this person, you're like, but I know what I have to offer. Mm. But then when you go through this rejection, it, I mean, it, 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 it mm. sucks. It's not great. So what would you say to a young person going through that right now? Well, I just think, you know, it's important to be open to feedback. Um, it is important to listen to what the market is telling you or what the feedback is. But I think the next layer of wisdom is being able to sift through from the feed- feedback that which is useful and that which is, isn't. Um, and, and to be clear about what the feedback is about, is the feedback telling you that you're useless um, and, and inadequate or is it telling you that the skill that you are offering right now is not what is required by the market at this particular point in time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just doing a little bit of that uh, reflective work of being sure about what it is that you're hearing because how we react to situations is a direct res- uh, reflection of the meaning that we give to what we hear. And so I think it's yeah. important to be open to feedback, but be very careful about the meaning that you give to that feedback and whether you're, you are associating things as a, a, a description of your character and who you are versus a description of circumstance. Hmm. Hmm. Wow, thanks. And what are, what, are, what are some of the highlights, what have been some of the great highlights of your journey? Professionally or personally? Um, either, either way, it's up to you, <laughs> personally or personally. Um. I was trying to think professionally, gosh, it's been such a beautiful, um, it's, it's been such a, a, a beautiful journey. But I think, I think probably one of the, just the first thing was getting to a point where I just registered my own business and decided that I was going to be a moderator full time. Um, I think a lot of, um, a part of the reason why I think moderators struggle in the market is that everybody thinks they can be a moderator and so and they, they treat moderating as a side hustle. Um, and so 
you know, you either find people who are journalists and moderating or have a full-time nine-to-five job somewhere else. And then if there's a moderating opportunity in the workplace, they put up their hand and they're moderating. And I remember just taking a leap of faith and saying, you know what, if, if I do nothing else in this world is to um, be, I will be an example that moderating is actually a very demanding profession. And that if you dedicate yourself full-time to that profession, um, you, you actually have the ability to take it to the next level. Um, and so part, of, part mm-hmm. of the work that I do is, you know, being very, very, very deliberate about the tools that I bring into the, conversa- into the conversations that I host and the conversational strategies that I build. Things that you're just not going to have the time to get to at the depth that is required if you're treating this as a side hustle. So I think probably one of my, um, you know, things that I'm proud of is I'm on a journey of, 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 of educating the market that um, the, the work of moderators and conversation strategists is not a, not a side hustle or a side gig and that there are people who um, do this work at a level, at a global level, um, and, and that it can be professionalized to that level. Um, mm. On a personal, uh, on a personal uh, front, I think probably, you know, the, the, some of the moments that I'm re- really proud of and probably my proudest is when uh, my mom decided to go back to school at the age of 48 and um, just watching oh, wow. her journey um, of her going back and getting her matric um, and going to varsity mm. at 50 um, and, and starting to teach for the very first time at 56 um so that has been you know it's been my fire um that you know whenever i start feeling like oh no this is too difficult or i really don't want to get into this and so on i just i'm reminded of um the fact that somebody had to wait that long to do something for themselves because they're so busy doing things for me and my sisters um Mm. so yeah so that's probably my proudest moments professionally and and personally Mm. okay and you know you mentioned that um like how like when you're just describing what it is actually to moderate and the work that is needed what do you think are some of like the misconceptions of what you do i think the the the, the, (laughs) i was thinking of that as you was i think the biggest misconception is that all we do is fly around the world and uh, wear, wear pretty clothes and um, um, you know look cute on stage. Um, I think that's probably the biggest misconception. Yeah, it's you know <laughs> if you're going to be a really really good moderator, the first thing you're going to do is that you're going to have to understand the subject matter of what you are speaking on incredibly incredibly well, and uh, the range of work and subjects that you're going to have to speak about. I mean, one day I might have to moderate a conversation around, um, you know, uh, cleansing the pharmaceutical market from counterfeit goods because of the economic impact in developing markets. The next day I might have to talk about um, intellectual property rights and why it's so difficult to um, attract uh, inventors um, in, in Africa to apply for IP rights and what we can do to change that all the way to how are we embedding technology in agricultural processes so that we are producing higher yields um, to address the food security issue in some of the markets around the world. Now, you can't 
ask intelligent questions that move the conversation forward, that unlock new insights, that lead to breakthrough thinking if you don't have a deep understanding of what you're talking about. So a lot of my work mm. is research and reading and sense making and making sure I'm not, I'm not only on top of things in terms of the breadth of the content, but I'm deep in things in terms of the depth of the concept on, of the content. So it's not a glamorous job at all. So there's a lot of work in the back end. And mm. then, uh, you know, when we get invited to these big presidential conferences, um, you need to have your, you know, like a lot of diplomacy in you to be able to work with the dif different um, political offices at the same time, because every president has got their way of doing things. Every president office has um, certain demands about, you know, the kind of questions they want to be asked, the kind of questions that they're not going to respond to. And to be able to manage all of that so that at the end of the day, one, the conversation does take place, but two, you do justice to the conversation and you're not sitting on stage performing a conversation of rehearsed mm -hmm. uh, questions and answers. Um, and so that's quite intellectually and emotionally draining, you know, to get that right. The, the thing that people see, which is the, the pretty face and the dress on stage is like yeah, 2% um, of the work. And yeah. I think the last thing is that, you know, people um, over... Uh, <laughs> over glamorize the travel um it's you know <laughs> it's 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 funny to be in different parts of the world all the time but the reality is that it's not fun being in between airports um for months and uh, months on end so um it there's 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 the work is really re rewarding but it's not an easy job mm. yeah yeah and just to touch on what you were saying about your mom, um, who have been some of the biggest influences in your life? You know, I think, you know, so obviously my mom is a huge one because of um, who she was in my life. But I think I'm also attracted to, um, you know, people that uh, sort of have a, a similar work ethic. And so, you know, my my very first boss, Umam Pumzile, is a huge, huge influence in my life and how she, she saw the world and so on. But I tend to find that I draw from different people, different things. Um, I, mm. you know, I learn from different people, um, a range of different things. I, you know, when I was in the television world, I, you know, I learned a lot from uh, Bronner Nielsen around just how to be professional to the core and just being absolutely non-tolerant of anything that was, wasn't perfect. Um, and so, you know, a lot, what I can say is that they, a lot of them are, are women, um, but there's a lot of women um, that I draw from. And, you know, another one I think of now is, and I think because it's her birthday, I'm just thinking about her, um, is uh, Dr. Lulu Guagua. And um, yeah, oh, she, yeah, she's a huge uh, inspiration uh, uh, to me and, and a personal mentor to me. Um, and I and I draw yeah. from her this a unique ability to um, balance all the identities she has to be, you know. So I know how to be, mm -hmm. um, you know. Recently married now, so learning how to be. Oh, congrats! <laughs> by you. the way, congratulations. Learning how to be a wife <laughs> while being a friend uh, to my husband and a thinking partner to him, and still, you know, being a daughter at home, being a daughter to my new family. 
um, learning how to be a, a, a business woman in, in context when that is required, um, a sister, um, a friend to my girlfriends, and being able to be very fluid about who you need to be in what moment um, without losing sight of yourself um, has been one of the things that she's taught me, which I'm um, very grateful for. Mm. 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 Okay. Wow, Nazi, thank you. Sorry, I got, I, I'm getting comfortable. No, that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely fine. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, this has been incredible and so insightful. So at the end of every interview, I always ask all mm -hmm. of my guests this question. Um, it comes from my favorite quote, which is, be who you needed when oh. you were younger. You know, I believe that um, as much as we can never go back in time and change things, if you needed something when you were younger, there's definitely someone today who might need to hear mm -hmm. what you would have needed, you know. So I always ask my question, um, the question is, if you could go back and talk to younger Nozi, what would you say to her? Um... I think what I would say to her is keep going. It will all figure itself out in the end. Um, I think that there were many moments where I took decisions really not sure what the outcome was. And I look back at it now and I'm like, oh, it turned out fine. God knew what he was doing all along, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would just say, mm -hmm. you know, keep going. I fortunately just, I didn't grow up as a child with a lot of anxiety. I grew up with, as a child that had a lot of affirmation and encouragement uh, from my parents. So, so I think for me, just I, I, I was always curious about, is this all going to work out? Am I going to be okay? Um, and, and mm. you know, I am uh, more than okay and very blessed um, at everything that I've been gifted with to this point. So I'll just say, no, just keep going. Um, it's going to be okay. Mm. 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 Wow, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing. No, thank you journey. for having me. This has been lovely. And, you know, like I was telling you before we started recording that I was a bit nervous coming to interview you because, you know, this is what you do. And I will say something that did help me a lot was when I, I, I went and I listened ah. to your TED Talk a couple of times. Yes, I, I, I absolutely loved it so much the first time I heard it that I, I replayed it this oh, morning so <laughs> and a couple of days ago. And I really love what you say about... Um, listen loudly with your whole heart i i really enjoyed your ted talk it really does it, it's helped me figure out as well how to go forward with when i you know when i'm doing mm. brigade and having conversations oh i'm glad yes. to hear that i think my day is made thank you so much thank you so much for tuning in guys don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review as always, we love to engage with all of you, so feel free to pop us an email if you have any feedback or guest recommendations on info at shebrigade.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, so don't forget to tag us on your posts at SheBrigade. See you next week.